0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors, and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Clowning Consulting. In today's episode, I speak to Simon England, Director at Garwood Solutions, former Senior Managing Director at Accenture, and Independent Director of HCL Technologies, the 150,000-person global technology and services firm. If you've been listening to the show for a while, You may remember that Simon's colleague, Rob Garner, featured back in episode 51, right at the start of the year. Now, I always like to ask my guests who they would recommend, and Rob pointed me to Simon, highlighting his extensive career leading various business units for Accenture as something that he thought would be of real interest to you, my listeners. Over the past 36 years, Simon has built up a wealth of experience in leading, transforming, and growing organisations across both the public and private sector. Before joining the team at Garwood, Simon spent 27 years with Accenture, leading various business units and helping to turn around others. Between leaving Accenture and joining Garwood, Simon spent a year leading the stabilisation and recovery of Capita's largest and very public transformational outsourcing contract with Primary Care Support England, overseeing a 900-strong team to turn the programme around Given the current climate and Simon's phenomenal track record of both growing and turning around services businesses, I was super excited for this conversation, and my gosh, did it deliver. In today's interview, we dive into a whole range of topics, including Simon's uncommon path into consulting, his entrepreneurial streak, and how starting out on his own actually helped him build the successful consulting career he's had. The lessons from that career, from his 27 years at Accenture, and what you can take from them to help you on your own journey. And finally, Simon's advice for consulting firms, for those of you who are either running your own firms, or for those of you in bigger firms who are, are potentially partners at the likes of Accenture or PwC or, or other firms of that size, on what you should be doing right now to help you stabilize your business and succeed beyond COVID-19. While we'd recently started working with the Garwood team just prior to this interview, it was great to get a chance to speak to Simon outside of that, to hear his insights on building such a successful career and have the chance to share them with you in this interview. With all the uncertainty at the moment, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of confidence and clarity from what Simon has to say. Whether you're currently focusing on the short term health of your business or you're looking at your long term career path there's tons in here for you to learn from and apply in your own life so with the intro done all that's left to say is sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with Simon England Simon welcome to the show hi so I'm really looking forward to this. As you, as you made the point just before we started, this is the first climbing consulting I'm recording in lockdown, in quarantine. Indeed. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting your take on that and hearing how you've been managing it. And we'll go into more about how we know each other and you know, some of the things you're doing now. But for those who don't know you so well, could you give me a bit of a background on your career and how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, certainly. So actually I did engineering at university. So I'm an engineer by background, like a lot of consultants, I suspect. The one thing I knew leaving university was that I definitely never wanted to work for a big firm. So I ignored the milk round and through my personal network, ended up joining a small, what would now be called a fintech firm uh, in the city and started building Eurobonds trading platforms. Our biggest competitor was Bloomberg, who at the time, I think, employed about the same number of people as we did, about 10. And uh, they won uh, over <laughs> over 20 years. So basically, that's what I was doing in the uh, sort of mid to uh, late uh, 80s. What I realized in that is I didn't particularly enjoy the financial services area. And actually, the tech side of it, I got somewhat bored of. So I took a bit of a change of direction. And I looked around at that point to get us Uh, probably a proper job, and learn a bit. So that's how I ended up in consulting. So I then spent 27, 28 years at Accenture. Obviously joined in the late 80s when it was Arthur Anderson Management Information Consulting Division, and uh, that took me through consultant manager to partner in the late 90s, 99, uh, and I stayed there until 2016. So since leaving Accenture, I've been doing a lot of other independent type roles. I did that sort of deliberately. I wanted to go and work with some other people and do some different things. And uh, so uh, a bit of a portfolio. I spent about a year after that as interim CEO, MD for one of Capita's health businesses, I think called Primary Care Support England, which was a big outsourced operation to run primary care in the UK. So that had uh, become very publicly problematic. So I was asked to come in and turn that around and uh, right the boat and uh, work with ministers and and really get that back on track. So I had a a very challenging but successful year on uh, PCSE, which was fun. Uh, And then since then, I've uh, been doing a, a, a collection of smaller advisory projects particularly in health around digital health and then more recently i joined and then have become a director of garwood solutions and a garwood or boutique advisory business for the consulting world so i've been doing that that's given me pretty busy uh, and uh, then in the gradual move to plurality and the portfolio in the last year I've also become a main board director of HCL technology the Indian uh, headquartered a sort of multinational tech and services firm so uh, I'm now working to help them which is also another interesting string to my bow so uh, enjoying it so that that in a nutshell is about it
0: that was a, a very, very concise uh, overview of what has been, you know, a, a very long career. So well done. And um, there's a few bits in there I, I want to start on, and I want to pick up on all of them. And actually for our listeners, I should have said, and I, I usually give a, a bit of preamble about where guests have been introduced to me from, if if they have been. And obviously, in your case, it was from Rob Garner. So former guest, fellow Garwood director, who, again, you know, what I, I tend to do when I speak to people is ask who they would recommend, and, and you came top of his list. So sort of digging into, I, I really want to pick up on what you said around not wanting to go into big companies, because anyone listening would, would obviously realise from the intro that change, But and this may be a complete red herring and it might just be a dead end, but I always do some research ahead of these interviews. And, and I was intrigued by your your own startup business that you have on LinkedIn, but you didn't just mention. So I, I don't know if there's a story or if it's something to move straight on from, which is you for five years ran a lighting business. Was that a, a university venture? Was that a side hustle? I, is it relevant to the story or I'll let you you tell us more?
1: I, I think it is relevant. And and. and Ironically, Nick, you're not, you're not alone because it's the one thing I still put as a one-liner on my CV that it's amazing how everybody always picks up on it. And, you know, in a way, it, it probably tells you a little bit about me and particularly the entrepreneurial streak, mm. which I, I think is a relevant point. So, you know, my, my family background was all own businesses, you know, so quite an entrepreneurial type of environment that I grew up in. Anyway, hence me not, not doing the milk round and going into a big a big firm to begin with. And really, I just started, and this goes back to my school days, and it was real happenstance, really. You know, a mate and I who did lots of things to do with theatre and sound and lighting, we decided, so it was probably in about 81 or even 80, we just decided to do something a bit wacky as a bit of a project and connect Computers, which of course were pretty new things, personal computers, to theatre lighting control systems. And we built the electronics, the software, and whatever. And we went through several versions of that. You know, we made it up as we went along. What happened, that became a very long path and journey. And we kept on reinventing it. We decided we would get these out there to control big rock lighting systems we sold quite a few of them it was also at the time where moving lights so the sort of things that genesis and pink floyd were just inventing at the time we became the only people who were allowed to control and drive those things worldwide so we, we kind of also reinvented the paradigm of how to program and control very big lighting systems and we were just at that point in time about the same time that bill gates was doing what he was doing and steve jobs was building stuff in a garage and we became those people in the lighting industry and we built that business and ran it whilst i was still at school through university and actually in parallel for the first two years sort of moonlighting in the evenings and running the business as we went like all businesses the lesson learned and it's relevant to today we hit major cash flow problems we expanded, we spent a lot on marketing, and we over-budgeted. And we learned, you know, age 22 or 23, what it's like to be facing down the barrel of a gun and how to really reshape a business. And that was that was why I ended up going, or one of the reasons I ended up going and getting what I considered at the time to be a proper day job that would actually pay the bills. And actually, to be fair, my partner, Nick, who's a very good friend of mine now, He kept on running it and it became one of the most successful lighting control businesses uh, in the world. So called Flying Pig Systems, which is why a lot of people pick it up on my CV. So, So I think the relevance to today was it taught me a lot at a very early stage. I loved it. It's probably also characteristically one of the reasons why I've ended up going back to doing some of the independent, some of the entrepreneurial type things I do now, and, and frankly, I love working with smaller businesses that are high growth where y- y- you know I, I, ca- I can just really help them on a, on a very simple personal level. I always go into these businesses thinking I can't give them any help or any advice within about an hour I'm up to my neck in it, and I just love you know I love that, so I get very passionate about growing small businesses so well
0: and I love the uh, I, so you obviously, I'm not the first one, as you said, to pick it up. And I did it for exactly the reason that you said, which is I saw flying pig systems and was intrigued. Uh, and I think as a, as a marketeer, there's a marketing lesson in here for everyone from you. But I guess that, interestingly, that, that I sort of, when I must, you know, apologies, when I read lighting, I, I sort of thought it could be a bit dry. But what you're in effect saying is you, you were sort of one of the early tech startups of the 80s, which is quite, quite amazing. We
1: were, and we, you know, we knew nothing. And actually, this is one of the other probably relevant points is we just had to go and get stuck in and immerse ourselves. We had to take risks, commercial risks we were making up. I mean, yeah, Nick and I were out on tour with Peter Gabriel. We were doing raves. We were doing, you know, wild, crazy things. And we were learning every single day, weekend and whatever, and putting it back into the software and the design. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think... You know, my view is you've just got to go for it and get stuck into these things, get stuck into the business. It doesn't matter if you're not an expert, you just got to learn fast.
0: And I'm going, to, I'm going to go on to the consulting bit momentarily, but I feel I have to ask, what was the best gig or concert or any other that you got to control the lighting
1: at? Good question. I would say Prince at Wembley Stadium, probably, was pretty cool. We did, however, have a great moment in an empty stadium up at Gateshead when the big new control system we'd spent two years building, we were allowed uh, Simply Red were starting their UK tour. This was probably in about 88, somewhere around about then, and we got access to their stadium and their lighting system for one night to run our first full-scale tests, and we plugged this stuff in and I have to say it was incredibly exciting we uh, lit up the whole of Gateshead and the south of Newcastle across the time with these moving lights and that was although there was nobody in the stadium other than three of us it was pretty cool so uh, yeah.
0: So I want to then turn to and it's probably a question that others listening are asking themselves as well because you started obviously from a young age hugely entrepreneurial had that early success which like you say, because of cash flow meant you needed to go get another job You went into that, the sort of fintech startup, which again, startup entrepreneurial. And while I appreciate things were different and Accenture as is, or Anderson, was it Anderson's you were part of prior? Yeah,
1: it was actually Arthur Anderson at that point before Anderson Consulting and then eventually Accenture. So, yeah. So, you know, I saw it through some really interesting changes, not just in brand, but corporate structure and everything.
0: And on that story, I guess the first question is almost you mentioned it right at the start you said you never you know you didn't go to the milk ground you you didn't want a a corporate job how did you find yourself joining what would have been at the time one of the you know the big global accounting consulting firms and almost do you remember if what the
1: challenges or concerns you had in in making that shift were so um, i mean it was different to me but i mean it was You know, it was such a well-structured program. You know, they put you on a plane off to Chicago. They take you through the two weeks of... It was great, actually. You know, it was so well done. They challenge you pretty quickly. I learned a hell of a lot. And I just got stuck in. So actually, it probably wasn't as big a change as I expected to be. I just got my head down, got on with it. You know, I joined... Again, with a, a relatively clear personal plan that didn't last very long that I 'd stay for three or four years to manager, go and do an MBA okay. but by, by the time I got to manager, I kind of went, actually what 's the point of me going and doing an MBA now? because frankly, I think i 'm learning as much, if not more here, and at that point, I was so I was working pretty hard and, and challenged i'd just been pulled on to well actually to write a proposal. To rebuild the national insurance system in Newcastle. Well, actually, t- to do the business case for that. And I then ended up involved with that for nine years. So I went through from consultant to partner on one client program. Wow. Lots of different components and a lot of different challenges and a lot of different roles. But that was, you know, fascinating. So I think the real answer is I stayed because there was never a dull moment. Yeah, there was always another big role, another big challenge, another big client. And actually, I really enjoyed that. You mentioned there around having a three-year plan that extended
0: and another 24 years later, you, you were still there and, and that was when you, you sort of left. But actually, that career journey itself, so nine years on one client, yeah, for some people, that is almost the reason they leave firms is that sort of that spending that long on one client and al- almost... I imagine you had to have a goal or a motivation to keep you going, particularly when you're you're travelling to and from you know, the client up sort of up in Newcastle to do that type of work. Is almost how did you approach that? You know, did you form a new career plan? Was it you know like you just said? It's sort of I'm enjoying it, so I'll keep going till I I stop enjoying it, and and that never happened. Almost how did you approach sort of looking back that 27 years to reach you know to reach where you did?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it, it's interesting, Nick, because I've also listened to some of the other people you've talked to and again Mm -hmm. you'll be bored of people probably saying this but but there wasn't a plan that there really wasn't a grand plan so you know i ended up in newcastle for nine years i never aimed to stay in newcastle for nine years i was going up there for three months to write a business case i then worked to sell the next bit and then the next bit and then the next bit and it got bigger and bigger each time so probably Actually, that the, the longest individual role I did was probably about eighteen months. It's just I did lots of different roles, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, I, I think you're right. If there's a big challenge, yeah, you know, my my advice to anybody else is just go for it. I often think people can overmanage their careers, and they start putting constraints and barriers in place. I, I always encourage people just not to do that, if if at all possible, because. You you miss out on stuff. You know, some of the best things that have happened to me have come from the most unlikely places. And and I just encourage people just to follow it.
0: Yeah, it's funny. My I, I sort of look back fondly on my time as a PMO in Birmingham, which at at twenty, I think I was twenty-four, maybe twenty-five, felt felt terrible, but actually has has taught me a lot of the life lessons that I, you know, I I use today. And you mentioned that you'd seen a ton of different structural changes. I mean, obviously. Arthur Andersons and Andersons and Accenture you know that whole journey that must have thrown up a whole number of challenges you were presumably then you were there as well for the the IPO as well so you'd seen a sort of whole load of changes almost what if any sort of complexity did that add in in that that path to to sort of managing director and where you got to and almost this I guess might talk to I know something you've highlighted before around the entrepreneurial side of of Accenture something I think not a lot of people really expect expected almost how did those changes affect the business and then you and your career as you sort of
1: grew within it so you know the, the shift in structure the ipo they really created massive change a massive behavioral change in in people and leadership you know if i look over the 27 years in in total let's go pre-ipo first of all Anderson Consulting Accenture grew massively. You know, I, I can't remember, but I would think I was employee number 70 or something like that in, in the UK, okay? Wow. And it, it became a huge business. And with that, you actually learn a lot about how to run bigger businesses. You know, some people might see it as bureaucratic, but actually it is an important part of governance and how you run big businesses. And, I, and actually, I, I learned just by growing up through it, kind of how that worked. And, and that changed hugely. The other big thing that changed, which for, for me was really exciting, and I probably didn't realize it until afterwards, was Anderson Consulting and Accenture went from being what I would call a traditional management consultant, advisory type business. You know, when I started, it was partner-led teams selling advisory short-term projects. With yeah, you know, the advent of technology and systems integration and ERPs and CRM and and then outsourcing, you know, Accenture just went sideways. And actually, for me, that was really brilliant because it then became a far wider and broader business, and and the types of solutions you could put together became you know so much more diverse. And I have to say i love that so in the jobs that i've done uh, over time i've worked right the way through from pure strategy through big technology enabled programs right the way through to you know business process outsourcing it outsourcing you know with really large teams in india and i have to say that's been and one of the reasons why i'm really enjoying now working with hcl is I've loved a lot of my time in India. And actually, to me, that change was great because almost the business and the challenges came to me rather than me having to go and get them, which is one of the reasons I stayed. So that was a big change. The IPO changed a lot for a lot of people. It made quite a few of the sort of previous leadership pretty wealthy. It changed probably their incentive set, quite a few left. It created a whole load of incentives for new leadership. So new different performance incentives. The place became a, a corporation and that brought with it some behavioral types of change. I, I think in a way, probably the organization also grew up. You know, it was then a corporation rather than probably an inward-facing partnership. You know, it then had to produce results. It Then the ups and downs of that, you know, you've got quarterly results. You know, that type of dynamic changed the firm a lot of people didn't necessarily want it to or believed it had changed anything but you could see the shift over the years massively and I think that was a very good thing I mean Accenture would have never got to where it is today without uh, obviously having done that so
0: there's something in that point around it growing up and, and becoming more corporate because something like I sort of alluded to earlier I know we've spoken about before is actually that you saw and see Accenture as highly entrepreneurial and and uh, you, know, you, you described your time running insurance for UK&I, which we'll, we'll come on to as like running a small business in a in a big business. And I'm really interested to, I guess, explore that because people who I know who have left Accenture, and again, you know, everyone has their view, is some people will say that it's almost, to your point, it's got bureaucratic, it's, it's a big corporate and therefore that stifles innovation, it stifles entrepreneurism. But you know, as you said, and you've shown, and obviously led successfully, you, know, you found a very different experience. And I'd be really interested, particularly for those people listening who are in firms like Accenture and their peers now, almost, how would you describe that situation? And almost, how did you find that Accenture fostered or enabled you to have that sort of entrepreneurial um, space that you wanted to grow the insurance business as, as you wanted? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. And you know, Obviously, the last four years there, I was running Accenture's UK and Ireland insurance business, which was probably a turnaround job in many ways, very successful, but had plateaued and needed to be regrouped, reset, talent, economically, clients, everything and re- rebuilt. I'd also done a not dissimilar role for the four years before that, doing the same with the health business. Very different type of sector, but same type of thing. So to answer your question, I think the one advantage that Accenture had structurally was where it placed accountability in the business. So there are some other big organizations that do it this way. But actually, over time, I've come to realize that actually an awful lot don't. And a lot of Accenture's competitors didn't, where they put complete end-to-end accountability for go-to-market strategy, selling, delivering people, everything on the client partner. So if you were the industry focused in financial services, in my case, then, or in, you know, government and health, you were totally responsible for setting how you went to market and what you sold, sure. You had the whole of Accenture behind you and all the resources of Accenture. You had to go and persuade people that you weren't barking bad. But to be honest, that was like being a CEO and persuading your investors, your shareholders, your private equity backers, that you've got a plan that's workable and you're going to deliver the results. So by God, you had to deliver the results. But largely, you had freedom to work out how to grow those businesses and make it profitable and get the people rewarded get the best talent and in a way it was the closest thing i've seen to being the ceo of your own business within a big business the great thing was is i had the bankers and finance of accenture behind me so if i had a credible plan and i delivered the results and i proved that i could do it it was a relatively easy case to make clearly if i was trying to sell something that was highly risky and wouldn't deliver the margin then it was a slightly different story and that Actually, Nick, I think plays to your bureaucratic point is my personal view. I think people sometimes confuse bureaucratic for big. Okay. I didn't find that in Accenture. Sure, there were some times when it was frustrating, but that's the same with any type of organization. There were some really important processes and governance in Accenture. Anybody who has gone through an Accenture capital committee meeting. You know, we'll, we'll understand that. You know, it puts you on the spot, but they're there for damn good reasons. And elaborate for those who haven't, what, paint a picture of a
0: capital meeting in Accenture for me.
1: So, if you, like, like a lot of firms, there are rules depending on the size of the deal and the risk profile as to where you need stuff to be approved and signed off up the structure. They've probably changed it since I left. In fact, almost certainly they will have done. But I think at that stage, if you had a deal, and I was fortunate, quite a few of mine did hit this limit of a hundred million dollar deal. If you've got a big outsourcing deal, you can probably hit that pretty quickly. You had to take it through a set of pretty well-defined and rigorous reviews with the Global Capital Committee. And that Global Capital Committee was made up of half a dozen plus of the leaders of the firm, you know, exec, board members, chief risk officer c f o and they grilled you, and rightly so, and you know you had to know your stuff, and they made sure that the deals were going to work. They supported you pretty well in making sure that you would win, but uh you know that was a grilling and and I think some people naturally were somewhat intimidated by that type of process and probably thought that was constraining your bureaucratic you know I have to say now with some of the roles that I do, I see immense value in that type of process and it working properly. Because if you don't get that stuff right, you can take down even the largest companies if you don't get that right. I I mean, you probably know this, Nick. Actually, I didn't mention this earlier on, but a little bit earlier in my career in the mid-2000s, uh, I was pulled on to the big NHS national IT program. And I ended up being the regional implementation director for the northeast and east of England, so two-fifths of the English NHS. So I kind of know every trust GP practice in that part of the world pretty well. Um, But that was a well-publicized, very challenging commercial environment for all of the players, not just Accenture. And Accenture ended up actually getting out of that contract, which was a very unusual and difficult and painful thing. I was right at the center of that and saw that. So I had a lot of scars on my back from that. But it's experiences like that that I think make you appreciate the importance of some of these risk and governance processes, which can seem bureaucratic, but they're, they're damn important as far as I'm concerned.
0: I think the point you made as well, So it's, it, it paints a really compelling picture. And the point you made around actually, in effect, it's no different from if you run a, a small business and you have investors, bankers, you know, you obviously nowadays everyone wants to run a tech business and be sort of vc backed well it's i'm sure no different if you've got a vc backer who who wants to see a return as it is compared to a a corporate backer it's just your backers were in the boat as it were they were your your colleagues not a, an external party and i think i think it's a really a really interesting perspective and i wonder to your point there around that entrepreneurial flair and actually the ownership because i i certainly didn't appreciate that level of ownership that that you would have had of almost we're jumping sort of all the way back to come forward but you obviously had an entrepreneurial sort of start and actually when you got to that level and again forgive me in sort of grade terms what this means but when you got to that point in Accenture, you were running a business unit so i don't know if that was the healthcare business or if there was one before that almost what if any of the skills you'd learned from your time doing the lighting sort of startup and the fintech did you find yourself going back to most and almost conversely for colleagues who had maybe come through a, a more traditional sort of university route, were there any areas that you found others were struggling with that you were you, know, you were fine with because you 'd seen it
1: all before in your, your earlier days i don't think i'd say I've, I found it straightforward, but perhaps I was less frightened by selling, for example. I think a lot of people you know they go through their consulting career and probably they 'd be naturally more attuned to client delivery, and there is sometimes I see people sometimes have this a bit of fear about how, you know, how, how, how the heck are you going to sell to a customer? I suppose in a way I was kind of lucky because actually on some of the projects and things I was doing in Accenture, I kind of was stuck into sales and bids actually probably within my first six months in the firm so so, so I think I was probably more sort of connected to some of that all the way through my career. So there was never a big hurdle or step. And I think then the other thing to, to really answer your question is back to the entrepreneurial bit. I actually quite like being creative and I quite enjoy sitting in a room with a team of people coming up with some wacky ideas. And you know, if you were to ask my health team back in probably about 2008, 2009, some of the things that we were coming up with and wanting to launch for you know, diagnostic imaging, sharing solutions. You know, they were really high tech, very innovative. I mean, some people thought I was completely mad, but actually I liked doing that because they're things that we were good at. So I wasn't afraid of actually creating some very different types of ideas. And I think my encouragement to others is get creative, be bold, get out there. I mean, the worst that happens is you get it wrong, but you learn from that.
0: I do want to come on to that, particularly in in terms of where we are now, and and your work with with Garwood, because I know this is an area that you and the team are, are focusing a lot on in terms of that sort of helping firms through this. Almost just before going on to it, because I I'm sure there'll be some interesting learnings within the story itself. Is you obviously mentioned that you you were head of the, the UK&I business, you were healthcare before that, and and had spent a long time in the healthcare market, insurance was a from what I understand, quite a new step for you. It wasn't like you'd grown up, you know, working in and around Lloyds of London. I'd love to, to almost hear how you approach that. So you mentioned around being creative, getting everyone in a room. I mean, I don't know what the correct time frame would be for this, Simon, but almost, can you describe how that sort of came about? And then those early weeks, months, that almost what you did to turn it around? Because I'm sure coming out of this sort of current pandemic and recession, there's going to be some of those big businesses that can learn from the past. And so I'd love to start with Accenture and we'll come on a bit later to sort of your advice for for smaller firms and others dealing with this.
1: Yeah. So yeah, the the, the shift to insurance, because I mean, it was quite unusual. So, you know, I went literally from the sort of public sector government end of the business to financial services. And that was quite an unusual step. And it took me a little while after I'd been in the role in insurance to work out actually quite why that had happened, uh, as always with these things, somewhere out there there was this Machiavellian grand plan. I mean, the main reason was that I wasn't financial services and I wasn't in the insurance team, and actually the leadership of the financial services business, Richard, yeah, you know, Richard Lum, who I knew really well, um, Richard had known me from the past, and I think he wanted. A disruptor somebody who hadn't been part of that team so wasn't constrained by any politics or history and would see the world perhaps with a fresh pair of eyes and that that's certainly the, the main pitch he made to me and I think they were probably right to do that I think also they, they wanted me just to bring some fresh ideas commercially delivery outsourcing all kinds of things it was really interesting you know when i got there and i don't mean this is telling tales out of school but i was amazed to find stacks and stacks and stacks of time and materials contracts at large scale you know i hadn't seen a time and materials contract in the public sector for 15 years because i mean the uk government just found them unacceptable you know everything was fixed price at minimum yeah you know, a lot of stuff were risk-based Yeah, a lot of the things I was doing in the NHS were 100% at-risk value-based deals. You know, so so you can imagine, you know, I got there and went, crikey, guys, you know, I thought financial services would be about 30 years ahead of the UK public sector. Actually, in many ways, what I found was completely the opposite. So I, I think that was the reason that I was there. Now, back to the other part of your question, Nick, you know, it was challenging because I had some really big client deliveries, you know, very big clients in my Portfolio, and they they wanted change. Yeah, you know, so I spent a lot of time with the executive teams, CEOs, CFOs in those companies, and they said, you know, we love Accenture, but actually, we need innovation, we need something different. So what I did is I used the fact that I hadn't been in insurance before and I didn't know the sector but very explicitly to my advantage, and I was very upfront with all of them. And I said, you know what, I want to do though, is I want to put myself in your shoes. And by the way, Mr. CEO of RSA, Mr. CEO of Standard Life, could you carve out some time for me to go and spend days and in some cases weeks on the front line of your business? So, the first three to four months of me doing that role, I spent probably 50% of my time going around on the coalface of my clients' businesses. And, you know, I was processing pet claims in call centers. I was selling motor insurance policies. We, I was doing stuff with underwriters in Mumbai. I was, I mean, you know, I was out with loss adjusters for flooding claims. And it was great. You know, not only was it really interesting and great fun learning about somebody's business, but actually it gave me unique insight and actually a right to go and say things at the exec level. And what I found was really interesting is very few executives in the big businesses spend enough time doing that. So I was going back to them with things they thought was really interesting and I thought was just, you you know, fairly basic stuff, but it gave you massive credibility and impact. What was even more interesting, and this would be one of my advice to, to consultants, and I mean, I've got a strong bias here, is I kind of found, and I don't think this is unique to Accenture at the time, but far too few of my team spent enough or indeed any time doing that you know so when i asked you know when i did big communications meetings or whatever and i got people to put up their hands and say when did you go last go and sit in one of the call centers and process a claim nothing silence you you know and i have to say i found that interesting so so i think it gave me quite a, a lot of credibility to be able to push everybody to go and put themselves in the client's business on the front line. Because fundamentally as a consultant, that's what we have to understand and do. And it doesn't matter whether you're selling or you're delivering. It all starts with putting yourself in the customer's shoes and seeing them through their eyes and seeing the challenges they have in selling what they're doing to their customers. So that you know that was really important to me. And I I spent a lot of time doing that. And I've got a really strong bias towards doing that. It's also great fun.
0: And I, th- I think they're really two. They're really two key key points there, Simon. And you know, obviously, doing what what I do now with create engage that that putting yourselves in the customer's shoes is is basically what what we make our living doing. Because it, it's surprising how many people I think don't think like you do in that respect. And actually, doing that, I, I think the point you made around there's quite a humility to go and do what you did. I think going to the front line in some of these call centers while I've massively agree you know that that value there there is a humility and I think something that our industry sometimes gets criticized with is you know, consultants can seem like people in sort of ivory towers but breaking down those barriers obviously was you know the key for you I'm I'm interested how you approached those conversations you mentioned with the CEOs and almost using your experience to your advantage because Something that I remember from my consulting days and, and you know, we hear it at Create Engage is people like people who have been in their industry. And so I, in my consulting time, I, I worked in insurance and I think insurance more than many industries like people who have worked in insurance. So maybe this is a non-starter, maybe it wasn't a point of contention. But when you went into those see those CEOs, almost how did they approach you and how did you help them see that actually your healthcare experience was going to bring them that innovative slant and innovative ideas that they were looking for?
1: It's a great question, and I think that does vary from sector to sector, to be honest. And I think there are some industries that probably particularly differentiate around that industry depth than others. And I think insurance, by the way, is definitely one of those. I think the challenge, and you know, Nick, you will, you will have heard this sitting with people in the insurance industry as well. And, you know, I still know a lot of people who, who lead some of those businesses. And they always actually say, actually, Simon, what we need is we need people who have industry depth, but it also can bring new thinking and new ideas. And we do want people who've worked in other sectors and can bring thinking from those sectors. I mean, particularly if you look at what's going on with, you know, digital Well, ironically, I suspect the insurance insurance industry definitely probably should be one of the industries that should most benefit from the use of digital, but has been somewhat laggard, I would say, in applying it for success. But that's probably a whole other story. But I, I think there is this bit of a dichotomy here where they do want to mix. I think you do need to be very humble where you don't know stuff But also, I think you need to demonstrate that you do want to learn and actually learn quickly. And I went out there and I actually immersed myself. And you you know what? You can immerse yourself and get pretty expert actually pretty quickly. And I think a lot of people who've worked in a certain sector for a very long time, they can run the risk of then hiding behind that and overcomplicating perhaps not seeing the real opportunities and potential. You know, they get a little bit stuck in the mud. So I would encourage people, actually, yes, you do need industry depth. It's critically important, particularly when you're selling. But actually, not single sole industry content at the cost of knowing about anything else. And I think that's a problem.
0: I think the point you hit on as well around, actually... It doesn't take as long as I think some people like to believe or like to say to become an expert. you know, like you said, three months on the coal face in insurance companies, you would probably had a better understanding of how to process a claim, how to underwrite a policy than than many of the executives in the business, and that's not to say they were you know they were remiss or they hadn't done their job. It's just you had been on the ground on the coal face and knew exactly the systems, the challenges, the problems. That almost gives you that credibility. And like you say, you know, that was for you a few weeks, a few months. It wasn't decades. And Nick, I mean, that's a good point.
1: Okay. So the privileged, and actually I've heard this said by some of your previous interviewees, we're very privileged to be consultants. Because as an external, we are allowed to go and look into every part, often, of big clients' businesses and go where we think there is value and we can lift up rocks, we can ask people. If you position that in the right way, you can ask a CEO or a, an MD of a business, can I just go and spend time right across your business? There is not a single one of them who will shut the door in your face if you ask them politely and you're yeah. humble. Okay, the great thing is is you can accelerate your expert building You know, you can go, I could could go from India, sitting down with actually really bright people doing reinsurance of massive estate underwriting, right the way through to pet claims in Peterborough. And I could go around that business and you can just hoover up and feel it and see it. You don't have to spend 20 years in claims working your way up to become a claims expert. So, you know, I'd encourage people actually, without abusing it, to use the privilege as a consultant to build that expertise, accelerate that expertise building.
0: Yeah, uh, I completely agree with you, Simon. And I think, you know, even more so today, where these, you know, the, the hot topics are only emerging. You know, if I look at something like data, I mean, the number of consulting firms who are doing phenomenal things in data who have you know launched only two three years ago data in its current form probably wasn't on the scene 10 years ago and actually for those people listening and i sort of this is what i'm hearing so so tell me if i'm right or wrong is almost particularly for those people listening who are trying to carve their niche you know if they're in a let's say they're in an fs practice and there isn't a sort of room for them to grow either into partner or into senior partner wherever they they want to go of almost you can find another niche you can sort of reskill and retool yourself if you are prepared to take a few months and a bit of learning and spend a bit of time on the coalface, you almost, it's one step back for 10 steps forwards, 10 steps forwards by the sound of it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, Nick. And, and particularly now, mm. because the pace is accelerating. And, you know, we're sitting here in the middle of the biggest pandemic the world has ever seen. Yeah. There are clearly some really bad things happening, but also it's going to be an accelerant for a lot of things and we won't go back and and again there are a lot of things and there's a lot of research to show what previous disruptions like the downturn 2007 2008 and et cetera is it always accelerates stuff and actually you know this one's going to be about digital it's going to be about data. You know, everybody's been, you know, arm waving about analytics, power of data, and there's some really good stuff being done. But actually, if you don't have data and good analytics and you don't have a good digital operating model, whichever sector you're in at the moment, then how do you ride this current storm? You know, it, it, it's central. So I agree with you completely. We're in a, an age where I think the ability to retool around some of these things, yeah, it, it provides great opportunity to, uh, to people coming through, I think. Yeah, and, and we
0: will. I'm, I'm only holding back somewhere because I, while I say I jump around in these shows, I like to keep topics like chapters and I, I want to come on to the what people should do with COVID-19 because I think, you know, I know from, from the work you're doing and the team at Garwood, there's tons in there that you can share. I almost, just to that last point around that sort of retooling, and this might be the right frame, it might not be, so, so tell me if, if it is or isn't, is almost one of the other things I I hear from people who have, I guess, been at Accenture. So it tends to be from people who have left. And so this might be sort of you know the one-side writing history, but almost the as you climb, the almost the, the progression becomes harder and you need to think sort of more strategically about how you make those steps up the career ladder, so the sort of consultant to manager, et cetera. Almost taking what you've just said about that sort of retooling, for anyone listening right now who's in you know, a consultancy like Accenture, how can they try and identify the right wave that's coming and set themselves up for success so they can
1: ride it and get the, the career success that comes with that? It's a good question, and, it, and it's a difficult question to answer because I'm, I, there is certainly no perfect way. So I'll give you my biased preference on that, uh-huh. which is don't overmanage it. You know, If anybody has a perfect crystal ball and they can predict that stuff, then they're doing very well indeed, and they're probably in the wrong job. So I do two things. Well, no, probably three things. One is do stuff that generally interests you, because if you generally hate it and don't want to do it, then you're not going to perform very well. So actually do stuff that you're actually good at doing and that you enjoy doing, and you'll tend to perform best. Second thing I'd say is, you know, again, I've said this earlier, but get stuck into your client's businesses, you know, be inquisitive, get out there, you know, wh- whether it's in you know, consulting and you, you've got to go and find out about your client's business, or even if you're in a, you know, a startup, you know, immerse yourself in that sector, that customer base, be part of the fabric of that sector. You know, become something in it. The third one is obvious, and I know this is a bit dull, but you've got to work hard. I personally don't think there are any shortcuts on this stuff. Sometimes you get some knockbacks. You know, one of the criticisms of a lot of the big firms is you start progressing your career and the goalposts just keep on moving out. My response to that is tough. That's reality. That's the world we live in you know what, just get on with it, keep focused, keep going, keep pushing, redouble your efforts. Um, there are ups and downs, there are setbacks. By God, I, I've had some times where I very, very, very nearly left Accenture for various reasons, but I stuck with it. And I reinvented myself, I took a different role, or I did a different thing. And, you know, within six months, I was often up and running and challenged and, and you know, enjoying it. So those would be the, those would be the three things. Brilliant. I, I really like that. And it's,
0: you're right, there's a couple of things in there. And I know before this, we talked about some of the other guests that I've had on the show and that you've listened to. And you know, that point around that long term piece, you know, I know, I've only come to that probably in the last few years, but is a, is such a critical point. and And almost, I think transcends careers. I, I think nowadays with sort of the headlines being made about 21 year old millionaires, everyone thinks that's what what they should do. I know I was sort of, I was suckered by that. And you know, that's that's not the case. And actually, Part of me wonders if this lockdown will almost sort of bust that myth because I think the myth of it wouldn't it be fun to go and sit on a beach and drink pina coladas well you know I think we're all I don't know I'm sure you're the same Simon and your sort of friends and family frankly I'm bored and you know that's just spending my weekends doing it so imagine doing that for your life you know I don't I don't see that and I, and I think your point around reinventions almost the I think the key one out of you know what you were saying around the, the your journey into the insurance practice and making a success of that of almost if you're not going to reinvent yourself, you're always going to reach a ceiling because at some point you're always going to need to because that's how life is.
1: I was just going to say, the great thing is there's always another challenge or a different yeah. challenge or a bigger challenge. That's what I found. You know, there's always been, you know, somebody said to me, I tell you what, son, why don't you go and build and implement the UK national insurance system? I'd have laughed at them. The great thing was it was unfolded over nine years. You know, if somebody said, "Go and turn around you know Accenture's insurance business, yeah, ditto, but actually by the time you get there to these things, they seem you know perfectly reasonable challenges to go and have a good go at so there's always another challenge completely. I want to just before we do sort of close the accenture
0: chapter and 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 move on to to what you're doing now of almost you mentioned it right at the start and you touched on it on it there about you'd thought of leaving a few times and i actually i think at the position you got to there's almost a slightly different challenge in that i know a number of people like yourself who had, who have left big firms at very senior positions and i almost sense there becomes the opposite challenge that people have maybe at the junior grades of by the time you reach there you know you you've got a good career you financially you're doing well and almost it's not the challenge of, will I make partner next year? It's almost the opposite of, well, well, one more year, you know, that's a good bit of the retirement fund or, you know, whatever whatever you want to do or whatever motivates you. But almost that break at the senior level can be quite difficult, particularly if you've been in a firm like that for such a long time. Of almost what led you to start thinking, yes, now's the time to go. And do you remember any of those questions you asked yourself or others that sort of helped you make that decision?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't sudden And immediate. And there was no particular event. I'd been very lucky. I'd done some big industry business unit. I think you described it as type roles, insurance, health. I'd been client partner for some of Accenture's biggest global clients, what they call the Diamond Client Group. And I'd done, I think, three of those in succession. And to my mind, They're the best roles in a firm like that. Yeah, client facing, a lot of responsibility and accountability, delivering a lot of stuff for some of the world's leading organizations. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, as good as it gets. And I think if you talk probably to any Accenture partners of a certain age, I think everybody would probably say the same thing to you. Those roles were the best because they were less encumbered probably by the internal nodes of the firm and the balance sheets and politics. And they were very outward facing, which was Mm -hmm. great. And I got to the point where I'd done effectively five or six of those big roles, one after another, which I loved. And I couldn't have probably done any other better roles in the firm. You know, I might Mm -hmm. have gone, gone and led a slightly bigger diamond client, but essentially it would have been the same. And I could have enjoyed doing that forever. I kind of worked out I didn't want to move back from the client frontline. I didn't want to move back from the industry and go and sort of manage lots of people who were doing that because I wanted to be closer to the industry. And I just got to the point where I ended up in the insurance role and I went, okay, what's the next step? Do I stay here and do it? It wasn't quite obvious to me what role I was going to enjoy as much. And I just thought, you know what? I'm at a stage in my life. I'm going to go and do some different people and actually do some different things work with some different firms. Mm. And it was really difficult. I mean, Accenture were brilliant. I mean, they, they helped me through this. And I, and I left, you know, I have some very good friends at Accenture and, and I still get on very, very well with, with, with Accenture. But I mean, it was weird you know, I know it sounds stupid, but I, I hadn't written a CV for 28 years or something. You know, that was odd. You know, I'd spent there interviewing, you know, recruiting partners at every level in Accenture, you know, hundreds of people. I was always the other side of the desk. And suddenly I was, I was having to go into people, you know, and sell myself. It was, I mean, it, it was kind of deeply strange. And also I think you realize that you, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs. You go down a lot of paths that you think are great. And I, I did what you would expect an Accenture person to do to manage their career. I came up with a plan. I had lots of actions. I executed it manically. What I realized is very little of that was actually relevant and worthwhile with the benefit of hindsight. And actually, the things that have worked for me since then have been personal networks. And it has all been about the personal networks and talking to people and getting out there, whether it's drinks or dinners or lunches or whatever, or just asking people. All the high quality connections and all the interesting stuff has purely come from those directions. Except, interestingly, and it was interesting because I think you asked Julie Badley this question about non-executive directors interestingly still a lot of independent directors and the processes that are required around that still come through a lot of the search firms and actually my role with hcl did come through that that route so that's one of the very few things that came from a, a different angle
0: i think that points around the the shift is is a is a fascinating one and while uh, i have listeners across the whole spectrum so i like to cover this and the the reason is actually i i I'm thinking two specific people but um, you know there will be a lot more who have just basically done who are in the process of doing what you did and that transition from a big organization to their sort of I guess self-employed career and I I know one of them mentioned sort of right down to things like you know you probably had a PA for 10 years and suddenly you've not you've not got a PA and these sort of things and almost did it take sort of some time to adapt to like you say that sort of learning or was it Almost once you'd exhausted the plan and you'd started pushing the personal networks, almost you saw it was working and you kept going with what was working.
1: So, I mean, to be fair, not not really. I mean, I suppose slightly in jest, but the biggest challenge I had is I decided to lighten up the technology and, and move from sort of massive PCs lugged around in bags to a uh, a MacBook Air. I'm not entirely sure. That was actually the smartest move. But actually, it was the technology shift that was probably the biggest challenge. The doing stuff, you know, in some ways, Nick, that was actually the most fun. I I was never afraid about having to do all things myself. So maybe back to my entrepreneurial roots. But, you you know, when I was doing stuff with the health business, you know, I started with a team of five. So again, it was a bit like a startup in Accenture. You know, I, I went from... You know, on the national program for IT, I think I, I had 900 people on the ground working in NHS trusts in my team. Massive scale. You know, when I went back two years later and was starting to rebuild the health business, there were five of us. And it was it was almost like a startup in the room. And we were having to do everything. We were writing everything. There was no, I mean, okay, I had a bit of EA support. But, I mean, it was so, – so, so, actually, I'm, I'm quite happy doing – All of that. I mean, sometimes, you know, my PowerPoint's a bit dodgy and stuff. But, you know, you work your way around and you work out what you're good and not so good at. But no, actually, the thing I've enjoyed over the last four years in some ways is stripping stuff back to being a consultant again. And that's actually fun. You know, I always start off with the kind of basic view that, I, you know, I walk into a room and I probably can't add any value at all. And it's always quite reassuring quite fun when you recognize there probably are some things where you can actually help a little bit out and and i enjoy that and and actually that's what the last four years has uh sort of almost reignited uh, i think
0: i think also that that nicely brings us on to i think the, the topic you you teed us up for a bit earlier simon and that you know that point around the the current pandemic because like you say you know obviously now you're doing a lot more hands-on advisory and obviously we know each other through rob and you know doing a bit of work together through garwood and to that point around that sort of advisory getting hands-on getting back to consulting you know right now we're in the middle of what could be the worst recession for a hundred years nobody knows right now and almost what should people be thinking about who are running these businesses to almost i guess weather this storm and and come out the other side at least no worse and hopefully sort of ready to, to capitalize when things get better
1: i mean it's all unfolding a little bit there's a lot of focus right now that has been on you know what i'd probably call the survive bit which is you know costs cash flow speed discipline you know getting, getting the right sizing the business the operating model yeah the sort of crisis action plans, the, what, whatever you want. And there's a lot of focus on that. And it is about survival, depending on which sector you're in, depending on where you are in your life cycle as a business, depending on your balance sheet strength. You know, it, it absolutely is an immediate massive problem. There will be winners and losers that come out of that. That bit, if you survive beyond that, then it's what you do next I know that's obvious, but what you do next and how you move is going to create the real differentiation on your performance, not just coming out of this, but five, 10 years beyond that. Okay. And I think the foundation stones of that success will be laid in the next few months. I think this is how you get ahead of the competition in your market. I I think this is a key time, what what again, we probably call it the sort of stabilize and then sustain phases is how you retool okay this is a great opportunity to look at your balance sheet okay not borrow money if you don't have to but actually look at innovative ways of being able to strengthen that balance sheet get more funding to be able to invest because now is going to be the time to invest there are going to be some good deals and that investment could be in many ways it could be M&A it could be talent it could be enablement and systems those platforms that you've been wanting to refresh and renew and integrate for the last 5 years but never quite got round to it or had the cash flow to do it i would argue now might be the time to refresh your operating model and your enablement and your operating disciplines and then most importantly your value propositions everybody's talking about the pivot but these markets are going to change fundamentally the opportunities out there are changing some are going There are lots of new ones. So actually reappraising what you're selling, what you're delivering, what you're good at, and your go-to-market strategy, now is the great time to do that housekeeping. So I think that really focused retooling, this is the time to do it, and then putting absolute full volume investment and focus onto the pipeline. Most organizations' pipelines have dried up and collapsed. Some haven't in some sectors. Amazon's doing quite well, et cetera. But you, you know it, it's a little bit of a luck of the draw, but for a lot of people, and professionally, you know, particularly in consulting and professional services, their pipelines have been impacted. So get the house in order and then absolutely go for it with the right talent.
0: And I, I really like that overview, and I guess it, it, there's two immediate questions, and, and you tell me if these are the most important and also take them in the order you choose if it, if there's a preferable order of, you know, I, I completely get what you're saying around use this time to to sort of refocus and retool, as you said. And I guess the two questions that jumped to my mind, and you probably had to deal with while you were at Accenture in, in one of your roles during one of the recessions, would almost be, if I'm running a professional services or consulting business right now, and I'm you know, trying to get all of the cl- as many clients as we can to keep working with us. I'm trying to balance, you know, furloughing team members or you know getting new clients is, is one of time of almost how people can make the time to do what you've just highlighted. And then the second question, assuming you can make the time, is almost how would you sort of guide people, or maybe you know these are conversations you're having with your clients right now of almost how do you guide them on what to retool because you know that list you gave is is quite a broad list and actually how can people sort of focus on what operating model elements, but also what value proposition elements of, you know, how do I know where to take my business? So I take whichever one comes first for you, but, you know, how do you find the time and then how do you decide what to
1: prioritize? Yeah, and they're complicated questions. And I think they're also going to, yeah, the answers are going to vary company to company. Mm -hmm. I think with the value propositions, it has to be some creative thinking. It has to be looking at what you're generally good at, as a firm, what you're uniquely differentiated to do? What are the types of clients that actually you are authorized to talk about or you have a right to talk about, I've heard said by others? I don't think it's necessarily any rocket science or things that haven't been done. I think it's very generally taking the time to go through a proper rethink of those propositions and what you're taking to market and how you're taking them to market, what channels you're using to sell those. And I suspect a lot of organizations don't spend that time to do a proper strategic re-evaluation. And I think it needs the virtual workshops and a bit of structure around it. And and clearly there are lots of consulting firms because I think there's a great opportunity here for consultants to advise on this stuff. And it's what we all do. But I think now is, is to take time to actually do it because otherwise I think you'll yeah, massively regretted, I think. I think the other point I make, and I know a risk of it being a bit obvious, but the thing I suppose that I've seen and probably reflected on over all of my Accenture time and probably even more so recently is the value of talent. You know, I know that's just really obvious, but with the right talent, you can conquer any mountain and you can, if you've got the right talent on the front of your business that's better in your competition, you will beat them, you will win every time. And n- now is the time I would say more than anything else is reevaluate what capabilities you need, not, not just for today, but those new areas of opportunity and go out there into the market and get them. Get the best talent in the market. Do not compromise. I still see far too many organizations compromising on recruitment. You know, if you need to pay people 30% more to get the best talent or 50% more, then do that. Do that every single time. In my book, it's a no-brainer. So I would go if there's one thing a CEO or a an MD should carve out that time to do it at the moment is reappraise the capabilities they need and the talent they have to execute. And if there is a gap, which there will be Go and do something about it. If you do nothing else, do that. Yeah, and it's a, it's a powerful
0: point. I think you've you know, powerfully made as well around that. You know, from your experience, just that good talent can beat anything. I think it's, uh, I still uh, remiss, but I'm yet to finish it. But Jim, I don't know if you read Jim Collins' Good to Great, because um, I know one of the points, you know, one of his biggest points, is simply get the right people on the bus, because that will solve everything. Is almost you don't know where the bus is going,
1: but if the right people are on it, you can you can probably fix it en route. Yes, I, I nearly agree with that. I think you do need to create some direction. You can, yes, I agree.
0: Oh, com- completely. But it I think all the, um, comes down to talent. And your point then around the timing, I mean, actually, this sort of, is, you know, it's the creative destruction, isn't it, of, well, one firm sort of sadly going under, that means there are people available on the market for other firms. And actually, now is probably a great time to be looking for prospective recruits, because, in times like this, people reevaluate their career, their lives, you know where they live, what they're doing, and, and people who you might not have been able to persuade to join you six months ago, three months ago now might might want to look at a different option. so yeah, I think it's a
1: yeah, and people you know, are. and yeah, people yeah. are. I mean, I, I am hearing those stories every day, different types of businesses, different roles, different people, but they are because you know everybody's got more time to think now. Than they've had for a long time. It's great. Actually.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree, Simon. And and to what you said around offerings, you know, the I can I can see the consulting landscape shifting, you know, substantially because we are now working remotely. This this isn't probably gonna disappear overnight. Large organizations need help doing everything to do with working remotely, you know, from technology to people to culture. So yeah, I think there's I think there's tons of opportunity. My
1: favorite quote at, at the moment. That I was actually sent by a completely unrelated organisation, but was from uh, Lao Tzu, the Chinese Taoist philosopher. I think his quote was, "Good fortune has its roots in disaster." And I have to say, I think this ha- this ha- has to be so applicable to this current situation. I think. Oh, completely.
0: And you know, to your point around the entrepreneurial spirit, I think. now we'll also see a lot of people make that leap. You know, the, I think one of the things that's changed a lot in our world is a job used to be a job for life and a secure job. And, you know, as times like this are showing when, when there's real problems in the world, all bets are off. And so, you know, I think the other side is a lot of opportunity, like you say, for people launching their own businesses, be it professional services, be it the next lighting, you know, the next flying pigs could come out of this. Yeah. Great fun. <laughs> challenging but great fun. Oh, definitely. And and I guess la- last question on this just because I'm I'm also a bit mindful of of time and I it's a lovely evening and I don't want you to spend your whole lovely evening inside with me when apparently the weekend's going to be wet and and to what we said before a weekend that's wet is not a fun weekend when you can't do anything outside. So, I guess the only other thing and you touched on it with your your point around almost getting ready to to capitalize on what comes out of this. And I'm going to ask this drawing on your previous experience, just because you might, you know, it might be too early to say now, but correct me. It's almost for those firms who have got one eye on the future of, they, they know they're going to be stable. They're, they're doing what you've talked about. You know, they're retooling, they're, they're nailing their value proposition, they're getting the right talent. Almost coming out of this, from your previous experience, what were some of the things you found, you know, when you were at Accenture during previous recessions, almost really helped you, you sort of, kick on and, you know, capitalise on that, you know, capitalise on that sort of the success from destruction. If there are, you know, I don't know, the old 80-20 analysis or if there's sort of two or three things that really stick out, what should people be having one eye on for the future to really, you know, be able to tactically capitalise on this and and sort of kick
1: on and and do so fast when the sort of situation clears? Yeah, I look back to my sort of industry roles and... Yeah, these are some things I did, but actually with the benefit of hindsight, I wish I'd actually done either faster or slightly differently. You know, and again, not wanting to repeat myself, but, but first of all is I'd have a refreshed, very clear, very simple strategy, not elaborate. Think about it. Okay. But don't agonize over it. it needs to be clear and communicable and sensible to all the people in the business, your team or whatever. Then really make the market creation and the pipeline building activity very focused, you know, bold deals. Now is not the time to be doing risk-averse time and materials type contracts. Now's the time to take risk around your strengths. So know what you're good at and go for it. I'd be also looking at the new opportunities out of this. I said earlier on, yeah, there are some permanent shifts going on here. And the areas that I'd really be focusing on now would be particularly around the workforce, workforce enablement. If you look at things like, yeah, the mental health issues. So I think, yeah, the whole engagement with your staff, whether it's platforms or well being or healthcare or whatever processes. I think the workforce enablement bit here. I mean, you know, everybody's got Zoom, you know, there's technology aspects to this around productivity and whatever. But that whole zone of workforce engagement, enablement, productivity is going to, I think, become even more important after this than it has before. So I, I think there's some really big opportunities there in, in our industry. At risk of sounding boring, Digital operating models. You know, we've all been going on about digital. Everybody's been piloting digital. Some industries have advanced well on digital. Some, frankly, haven't. There are a lot of industries and a lot of companies that have tacked digital as a shed on the side of their business, okay? They will be feeling the pain right now. Unless you are digital, front to back, mindset, culture, of your business with a scalable digital operating model, I I find it hard to see how you'll be able to weather this storm and the next ones. So I think as consultants, opportunity, actually really creating proper digital operating models, not just adjuncts or new business startups, but how you change that front to back is key. So I'd be really, really, really pushing on that. I think also the other thing at the moment I'd be looking very closely at helping companies with because there's assimilation and advisory work here, but M and A. This is a great time for M and A work. There are going to be some deals out there. There really are, and I, with some of my hats on, I'm looking very, very carefully at M and A opportunities at the moment, and, and and I think for consultants that creates. Some good opportunities as well. There are then, you know, there's a whole lot of new sectoral stuff. We're at a turning point for, you know, pharma, telemedicine. You're my old, I love the health sector. You know, I'm deeply passionate about it. But a lot of the stuff and the innovation in that industry is always too early and people can't buy it or they don't want to buy it. You know, I heard yesterday, it was hilarious. You know, at the moment, you know, somebody on the Beeb going, but, you know, it's impossible to sell to the NHS because there's no one person you can sell to and you've got to sell to lots of trusts. And I have to say, I thought, yes, welcome to the real world of selling into the UK <laughs> health system. But I mean, you know, look, this stuff is going to have its time. You know, t- telemedicine, I'd be looking at medical devices. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a world of healthcare opportunities here as a, as a sector to focus on. I think, as well. So th- those would be the, some of the things. You know, if I was sitting there now in some of the roles I've been doing before or leading a consulting business, those are the types of things I'd be looking very, very carefully at. And actually, to be fair, with with quite a degree of excitement and, and optimism, because if you've got the right people in your team to do it, you can crack on and I think be highly successful.
0: Some brilliant, brilliant recommendations in there, Simon. And I completely agree and well the ones i know about and i'm sure you know you're correct on all the the ones i don't and what you're saying about the whole i think the digital spin on everything is is going to be a seismic shift and particularly you know for those i think of those organizations who have traditionally been office bound whether by by desire will or or politics have almost suddenly I, i can't imagine being the ceo of a company that hasn't promoted home working right now and now has hundreds if not thousands of people working from home having to then deal with going back because i think we're we're really we've opened a pandora's box and like you say that's where a a ton of opportunity around that digital transformation i expect
1: is going to come from and some great you know positives hopefully whilst there are some challenges around mental health well-being maintaining productivity also you look at the inclusion and diversity agenda I mean, this potentially is a game changer. So, I, I think it's
0: it's exciting. Completely, and I, I would keep going, Simon, but I'm I'm very conscious of our time. And indeed, yeah. And so, last two questions. And you said you'd listen to some of these, so you know what's coming here. These are ones I ask everyone, and just I love, and I know my my audience love to to hear both the similarities and the differences, because I think if there's one thing that doing this podcast over the last sort of two years has shown me is actually very few, while there are some things that are universally true in consulting, actually the people behind the titles people behind the logos are are all very different have different approaches and and I think that's what makes the industry so interesting and it's what makes the answers to these two questions so interesting so the first one and I've promised myself I'll make the questions here shorter because my listeners know what's coming and you do so the first one's books and the question is very simply what is the book or books that you you find yourself giving or recommending to
1: people most often and again in common with some of the answers you've been given before I tend not to spend a lot of time reading a lot of management-type books. There are a couple that I have recommended over the years, partly because I got to know the authors at various points in my career relatively well. One is a guy called Peter Shaw, who's a very experienced coach at Pryster Partners. And he's written a, a load of books, but again, very practical. And one of his is called Getting the Balance Right and it's a great book for leaders just simple advice on again it, it plays back to some of the questions you you were asking earlier on you know what do i focus on <laughs> yeah how, how 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 do i make best use of my time so that that's good an interesting and very relevant book um called grown up digital by a guy called don tapscott and don did some great research in the early 2000s and wrote a book about the impact of the next gen and its sort of implications on the economy and actually it's now about 10 years out but it is still incredibly relevant and if you want a good read about what's driving the economy and what's driving people and some of the workforce expectations that's a good read when i'm not working i love reading so and it's a real luxury and again, I'd add to the list the book I'm reading at the moment that is absolutely fascinating from a corporate point of view. And I'm reading it because I I like all things India. But one of the best authors, I think, on Indian history is a guy called William Dalrymple. And uh, I'm reading a book of his at the moment. that is actually in the Sunday Times bestseller list, which is called The Anarchy. And it's about the 400 years of rise and growth and fall of the East India Company. And of course, the East India Company became... biggest most powerful corporation there has ever been in history by god there are some lessons in there that are relevant to today's big companies and corporations about values and behaviors and the role of companies and i tell you it's a cracking read so that's the one i'd recommend probably
0: Amazing. Well, I, I love that. I love the you know, the energy coming off you with that book. It obviously is a good read, and uh, I know some of the other guests you mentioned you listen to. I think I've said it before, but I need to read more non business books. That might be the the start. That sounds like a great read. And so I will I will put that on my reading list, Simon. And just because I'm intrigued, any any others you'd recommend non non business? What's your what's your standout non business? I don't know. Is it that sort of more non fiction books like the, the Anarchy? Do you do you have a go to fiction
1: author? Not really but actually you know, this sounds like a sort of getting old type thing but i hated history at school and actually the more i've gone on the more i love reading mm. history not dull ones history with a story is is fascinating so i yeah. i I'll, I'll, I'll think of some more nick and uh, over a drink i can uh, i'll give you some more ideas and suggestions Ah, uh, so, sounds great, son Well, as as you know, my listeners don't. You know, we
0: we'd planned to record this in my office in Bath because you're you're not a million miles away from from us. And so, sadly, obviously, you know, still glad we can record it, albeit virtually, like you're saying. You know, the technology's there, but we will we will go for that beer, and you can you can give me more. And part of me, I think the interesting thing is, I think this is the first time. I've ever felt like I'm, I'm living through a historical period that our children or my children will, will talk about. You know, the the great pandemic of 2020 is going to be in the, the GCSEs of you know, 15, 20 years time. So we'll see what's written on this part of history. And, and then the last question, and again, I'll, I'll keep this brief just because I, I kick myself every time for not, is you have three people in front of you. Uh, and the question is is simply what one piece of advice would you give to each of these three people? And the three people are at various stages in their career. One is analysts just entering you know where you were probably right back at the start. One is around that manager grade. And then the third is somebody approaching that that partner level, or as as I understand it essentially they call you know managing director. It's that you're going from the sort of the consulting grades into the, the leadership grades, you have the accountability and ownership of client accounts, et cetera. And like I said, the, the question is very simply, what one, one closing piece of advice would you give to each of them?
1: Yeah, and I think in a way, it's a, it, it's a bit of a probably recap of some of the points I've made. And I, I, I think you probably expect me to mm. say some of these things. So I think, yeah, analyst and consultant, I'd say, you know, g- g- go with it. Don't overmanage your career. Don't create constraints. Seize every opportunity. You know, work hard. There are no real shortcuts, as I said earlier on, unfortunately. To the manager, I'd say, you know, what, what are you good at? Focus on doing those things that actually you're good at and therefore you're going to perform best at. Also be inquisitive, you know, back to whether that is an industry, your client's business or whatever. You know, immerse yourself in it. Become an expert In that be interested in it and then I think to the sort of partner or about to be partner level again I'd say probably to time when in, in your career where it might not actually be that obvious to do it because there's a huge amount of pressure on people is focus on talent and the people you've got in your team spend a disproportionate amount of your time and capacity on people at a point where the temptation would be to focus on sales clients customers delivery bottom line profit actually do something a bit different and spend 50 percent of your time on people and i think that will return a higher return on that investment
0: brilliant well i think some really good advice. And like you say, you know, some just summarizing, which is partly why I asked the question. Some, you know, the the people thing really powerful. And I think there's a lot for others and also a lot for me to take away in that. So Simon, thank you very much for this. It's been great. I know, obviously, you know, we're talking more together at the moment. Can't, can't elaborate too much on why on the show, but you know, it's, it's been great getting to know you over the last sort of few weeks and months, and it's great to, to actually have a, a proper chat with you. Um, I feel we should have had a virtual glass of wine or a you know, virtual drink. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but the, the very last question then for anyone who's listened to this and uh, wants to find out more about you, where
1: where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? So probably two things. One on LinkedIn, just Simon England. Uh, on LinkedIn or on email, probably via my Garwood email address. So simon.england at garwoodsolutions.com.
0: Brilliant, Simon. Well, I will put both of those in the show notes so people can get hold of them. And all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best
1: for the rest of your week. Thank you, Nick, very much. Cheers.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the climb in consulting podcast if you did i would be very grateful if you could leave a review on itunes stitcher or your podcast platform of choice whichever one you may be using and please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview if you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast please feel free to drop me an email it's nick at climbinconsulting.com and i look forward to hearing from you